you have been introduced to the most selfish man in the world. And um, for the next five weeks, you will continue to be introduced to the most selfish man in the world. And uh, if you dare, uh, behind that black curtain over there is the selfie wall. And if you'd like to add a picture of yourself to that selfish wall, you can do that during this time. Or I can just go to your Facebook pages and print off your selfies and just put them there. But if you'd like to add it to the wall, you can. Uh, just in, you either laugh or you cry about how selfish we can actually be, and we choose to laugh because it's a little easier and it makes people less mad when you talk about it from a humorous side. Uh, but for the next five weeks, you will be introduced to him. Uh, we'll be putting it out on Facebook and, and Twitter and all that stuff so you can it, cause people to be like, I like that guy. And you should be like, why do you like that guy? And you know, whatever. But hashtag my questionable life, really. Um, and this series I'm excited about. Um, I'm excited about it for several reasons. Uh, because it really is talking about not a checklist of things to do, but a people who we are. Um, and I, and I want to, we really have to push back against that checklist mentality as Christians um, because I know very quickly that even a subject like Christ-likeness can become a checklist. Did I do my Christ-like act today? Did I do my Christ-like time today? And is that really what it's about? Is it really about putting a hat on and taking a hat off? And, and what did Jesus come to do? And why did he invite us to salt and light? Um, but if you've been in the life of the church, and for those of you maybe that are new to the church, I'm kind of giving you a little background uh, as to why the church is where she's at today. Uh, maybe, maybe it's just one idea. Uh, but as I talk to people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s about their journey with Christ, many of them will say to me that for so long in their life, all they heard about God was He cares about your behavior. Doing this and doing that and what we say no to and what we reject became more important than a relationship with Christ, a living, breathing, um, light, explosion type relationship with Christ. It was more so about what I've done or what I've not done. And I mean, at the point of sitting with people who are on their deathbed saying, I hope I've done enough to get in good with the Lord. Like that to me says, what have we done as the church when you have people who are 60s, 70s, 80s, where there's a relationship with Christ somewhere in the midst of what they're saying, but at the end of their life going, I hope I've done enough. Somehow the conversation of, well, Jesus was kind of like the springboard or the front door, and then the rest is up to me. And that's really something we've battled in the church, and I, I've seen a lot of my generation Millennial generation, I mean, Gen Xers, we were like, boom, we're done with church. We're out the door, we're finished with this. And so what we've done is we've said we're going to flee legalism. We're going to run from this idea of this do, do, do. And is there something more to relationship with God? What does a life lived, built on Jesus actually look like? And I want to be very clear a love for reading God's Word, a love for worship, a love for prayer, a love for serving, a love for small group community, a love for you know, uh, daily structured prayer times, the discipline, silence, solitude, giving, uh, being generous with your life, all of these things, this is not legalism. These are actually the disciplines that God has given us to guard us from ourselves. 
He's given us these gifts of his word, of prayer, of worship, of the gathering, of being with people, not as a way to save us, but they are these things that because we are in him, he's given us these weapons to guard against us going off on our own. Legalism is when we take anything God has said or given us and we actually start doing those things, counting on those things to make us right with God. Legalism is when we actually start saying, I've said no to 50 sins this week, so therefore me and God, I have a righteousness that is better than someone else's. Legalism says I'm taking my actions, these things that I'm doing, and they're actually going to make me better in the eyes of God. Legalism is me saving myself. And as a church, and as a generation, we were like, I'm done with this. This is too weighty. I don't know how to live in this. I don't know how to breathe in this. I don't know how to grow in this. And it's crushing me to believe that I have to actually do all these things to perform in front of or impress God, so I'm out. And so we've seen millennials, we've seen my generation, we've seen even just the generation before me start to ask these questions, an alarm has been sounded, scripture is being read, and people are asking questions of, is this really what it means to be a Christ follower by just what I say no to? Me, being, me, me, me saying, I can do these things, I'm strong enough, I'm smart enough, I can, I can set myself apart. Is it really about us? And we've started to ask those questions, which are very good. Because I do think the church has to figure out how to move out of this idea that we can save ourselves. But for our good, many have been stirred to ask these questions. If my works don't and can't save me, then what actually does? If we've seen for the past 10, 20, 30 years has been a man-made religious attempt to get to God. And all I've heard is, go without, don't do this, you be good, and then God will be pleased. If that's all we've heard, then what does it really mean to follow Christ? You know, many times when we read the New Testament, the Pharisees get a bad rap, uh, and justly so, because Jesus does come at them pretty tough. He says, look, you're putting a weight on the shoulders of these people that you yourselves aren't lifting a finger to help them lift. You're, you're clean and shiny on the outside. He's like, you're a death box on the inside. Your bones on the inside. Your black heart on the inside. You're deathly on the inside. And so there was a reason Jesus was very hard on them, but I don't always think we understand the role the Pharisees played in the history of Israel's preservation. It wasn't always that way. As the Greek Empire was reaching to the corners of the earth, as it was beginning to spread, not even Israel was immune to their reach. And the Greek way of life really was, do you. You just be you. Arts, music, human, thinking, reason, logic, all of these things basically pointing to you can be the best you can be and you don't need God. 
No pleasure is to be gone without. Do whatever you want. You are the highest plane. You have the brain. You have the heart. You are everything you need to be. You are ultimate. You are the greatest. Why do you need to worry about God? Worry about you. And that's all you need. If you were to raise your hand, if we were to be honest, how many of you would be like, I love that. Well, Israel wasn't immune to that. The people of Israel were going, wait a minute. These people are introducing us to a whole nother way of life. This sounds really good. I love the idea of me being God. I love the idea of me being the highest plane that there is. I love the idea of me just living the life that I want to live. Oh, right. Adam and Eve did too. And so the Pharisees began to see this losing of their identity. Israel was no longer being a lampstand, being a people who remembered that God rescued them, that he gave, he gave this pursuit of a sinful people, brought them out of Egypt, and that he was going to rescue them again. And the Pharisees were the ones who were sounding the alarm going, people, don't forget who we are. Don't forget that we are God's people. Don't forget that he rescued us. Don't forget that he will rescue us again. Don't be swayed to do life without him. And after several hundred years of trying to sound that alarm, it became easier to just go, hey guys, we aren't behaving like the people of God, so behave. Hey guys, we're losing our traditions and our customs, so behave. Hey guys, we are forgetting that we're not supposed to behave that way, so behave. The Pharisees fought to remain a people set apart for God. And as time went on, there was a beginning to forget. There was a beginning to forget that it was about God's relationship with these people that mattered most. And it became about an outer appearance more than what God had done for these people. I like to think that many churches probably desired relationship with God. I do think that many churches probably were founded on this idea that Jesus is better and Jesus is enough. And then the culture starts being very loud. And then they start to realize, wait a minute, we can't hold our people together, so maybe we need to pile on guilt or shame. Maybe we need to help people figure this thing out by just telling them to behave. I like to think that if there were honest preachers, this might be what it would look like. say to you, you guys, sometimes you're bad. Don't be jerks. You're supposed to be good. I'm in my office every day and somebody comes in and they're like, hey, whoops, 
a vow never to say who was the worst, but Dan, he's the worst. You know, but I do, you know, when you watch videos like that and you laugh at it, but it's closer to the truth in a lot of ways than we'd like to think. If you fast forward through Greek and Roman oppression of the Israelites, you have a nation struggling to survive, hanging on by a behavior and custom thread if you will. The Pharisees had fought so hard to preserve a nation, but they had failed to remain connected to the source of that nation's life. And over time, the stories of God's goodness were actually trumped by the stories, by the stories of the Pharisees' goodness. You see how subtle it can be? You see how we can get off just by a little bit, but the results can be disastrous because they become about us rather than the stories of God. And not being satisfied with this, knowing that something wasn't right, there's been an exodus from church buildings. There's been an exodus of Gen X and millennials that have said, we don't want that. We know we can't do legalism. I'm readily available to say I'm a screw-up, so I don't want legalism, but somehow I, I can't get past Jesus. Like, Jesus causes me an issue because I see how, what he's done, and I, and I, I want to go, okay, well, I want to be all about grace. And so I find myself having conversations all the time in Asheville, being a mountain town. There are people who are like, were you a law-based church or a grace-based church? I mean, it's this thing where people are like, well, it's got to be, I'm all about grace. I'm all about it. I'm all about these things, but, but might I suggest, and I could be wrong. I could be very wrong in this, but in our exodus, the way human beings are, we're so extreme, like we don't hit middle of the road type things. We were like, we don't want legalism, bad legalism, can't have that, I want grace. And it's as if the pendulum swung, we actually found ourselves crashing through the cross, swinging all the way to pleasure. Could it be that in our exodus from legalism, which has to happen, we have to figure out how we can't save ourselves. We said we wanted Jesus, but in our extreme hearing, no, 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 bad, 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 go without, go without, do everything. Could we have swung past the feet of Jesus and hit pleasure. What we may think is being all about grace, could we actually be all about us now? 
Because I will tell you in the church, it is very difficult to own how selfish I really am. In the church, it is very difficult to admit that my way of life is actually more important to me than sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so what we may have done in our attempts to flee going without, we have said, I will never go without, and I will love a Jesus who supports my way of life and my way of thinking. And instead of being shaped into His image, we've shaped Him into our image, our likeness. And man, do we like what we see. I think if we're really honest, we may have swung the pendulum to the other side. But somewhere in the midst of that exodus, we wanted to sit at the feet of Jesus. We wanted to know, Jesus, what does life look like with you? What what does life look like fueled by the grace of God? And we've basically come up with a definition for Jesus that says, He's a Jesus who supports me in everything I do rather than us being invited into his life. You can see the difficulty that we now find ourselves in. We wonder why the world isn't attracted to the gospel. Well, maybe what we're proclaiming is our way of life and the world is used to pleasure-seeking. They just think y'all are crazy because you add in Jesus to it. We all live the way we want to live. We just have the guilt of Jesus to our lives. And people in the world are like, dude, why not just let that go? But is this what life was meant to look like? Were we meant to walk around Going without everything because legalism says I can save myself. I can perform in front of God and it gives me better standing and it's my righteousness. To the other extreme of my way of life, Jesus supports everything I do. I just add him to my Sunday and maybe a small group attendance, but really I'm living my life. Is that what life is about? Is that what it means To follow Christ? Thankfully, the pursuit of Christ, His mercy and His grace and His life result in a whole new set of questions. This is the direction for the series that we'll be walking in for the next several weeks. My questionable life won't be pointed at our abilities to make bad decisions or good decisions. It really won't be about our lives at all. It will actually be about His life lived through us. The way we were created to live, the way we were made to live, is to reflect the One who gave us life. And it's in finding that as our purpose in life, that is what we were made for, that purpose is the one that houses all the other questions we have about life, about what I'm supposed to do, Because who I am to be is a much greater question than what am I to do.
And when we understand God's purposes for humanity, we begin to find that it gives purpose and direction to every step I take. This morning, our text is actually in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. We'll be reading from the message version, so if it doesn't sound familiar to you, that's okay. But I just want to encourage you, these guys are trying to open up the scriptures so that we will be impacted by them. And so if you're an NIV reader, read the NLT. If you're an NASB reader, read some ESV. Help grow. Study these words. These guys are on the same team. They're pointing you to the heart of scripture in Jesus. And so the message version um, just has really been exploding my brain. And so we'll just read it because I really do... Hope and pray that as we hear Jesus' words, we will respond to his words. Not the words we want to hear. Not the words we want him to say. But, the, but his words. Um, and in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has noticed that there's a great crowd gathering. And he notices that there's a mount over here. And so he says, a great crowd, mount, sermon on the mount, let's do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you things you've never heard. <laughs> And he points these people to blessing and, and how to be this person who, who lives in, in this, this awareness of his sin and mourns and is comforted and, 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 and empties himself out and finds himself filled and that the kingdom of heaven and peacemakers. And he starts using all these words that just sound crazy, but that because they're God's people, this is the way they're going to live. And then he looks out among the average sun-worn, calloused, shepherd's hands, fishermen, mothers, students, farmers, and Jesus tells them, yes, them, not a small group of very religious, studious people, pastors in training, small group leaders in training. He looks out at the crowd, and he begins to speak to them. Verse 13, let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there, on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives by opening up to others. You'll prompt people to open up with God this generous Father in heaven. Salt is incredible. You add salt to a steak and then throw it on a grill. Sorry, vegetarians. <laughs> but do you know that salt also makes broccoli incredible? <laughs> you put some salt on some steamed broccoli, boom! I actually like to eat it. It tastes delightful. <laughs> salt. 
It's not the meal, but it makes the meal taste good. And I'm sorry if you can't have salt in here. <laughs> and you're like, but I love salt, but I can't have it. It's okay. In the same exact way to these people, Jesus was inviting them because they would be people to see that Jesus has introduced them to light. He's introduced them to the blindness that they have and that they love. And he said, I have called you to myself. I want you to know what life and relationship with God will look like. So watch my life. But I'm ultimately going to lay my life down so that you can have this life. I'm going to give myself over to death, but I'm going to conquer it. And that way of life is going to be introduced to you. And these people who were seeing this and ultimately tasting of this new life were to be people who were to bring out the flavors in this world. But see, the problem is, and this is where sin comes in, we actually think we're the meal. And that's when things get weighty. And that's when things get too heavy. And that's when things start breaking down because we are not the meal. We're the salt and flavors what God has already created. Jesus says you're to be salt. You're to reveal what I'm already doing. And that's really the heart of this text is that we are people who reveal who God is and what he's done by our lives. And then to the noiseless and the unobserved in society, Jesus says, you, you are the light of the world. Those who sit behind a desk, those who have a hammer in hand, those who sit at the breakfast table with Cheerios spilled everywhere, those who travel far, those who stay near, you are the light of the world. Those with a master's degree, those with a GED, those who didn't finish school, you are the light of the world of the world. Jesus was intentional about who he said these things to. And whenever you see Jesus speaking to a group of people, pay attention to what he says to them. Oftentimes, Jesus troubled those who were comfortable and he comforted those who were troubled. To those who found themselves believing that their lives really didn't matter, Jesus just gave purpose to every single heart. Every single heart that questioned, why am I here on this planet? Jesus says, let me tell you why you're here. You're not here to be the meal. I think sometimes we think we are. And that's when things get weighty and heavy. Everything just became dramatically more valuable because Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Highs and lows, they will happen, and Christ will shine through both. But in your normal, you are the light of the world. The light reveals all that God is doing, and the light reveals another way of life. For all those who find their rest in Christ, that Christ has reconciled them to God, He's made us whole, you are the light of the world. Light is light because it is helpful to others. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, If light could be kept to itself, 
it would cease to be light. So simple. If light could be kept to itself, it would cease to be light. Stars, lamps, the moon, lighthouses, those things are helpful because there are people around to experience the benefit of light. Children, when Miss Sue holds up a crayon box in the dark, you can't see the colors. We'll talk about lying next week. But Jesus also makes it clear the purpose of the light. And it's not about us and our shining example. It's much bigger and all-encompassing than that. Look at verse 14 again. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you, I love that, if I make you, I'm putting you. So first of all, we're seeing that Jesus has very specific plans for his people. I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you will prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. The reason you and I are to take very serious Jesus' purpose for his entire body is because it is through people that God chose to reveal his transforming process in us and that God is who he says he is. I don't know why. I really don't know why he didn't just go, boom, I'm light. I'm here. Look at me. I am not just a lampstand. I am actually the light. Look at me. Boom. Here he did. And Jesus said that the people rejected him. He did that. And and Jesus actually said the people, they didn't go, oh, I'm blind. They actually loved their blindness. And so God has made a way for his people to reveal him. And this is the ultimate purpose of life. The mysterious plan of God involves you and me. God's purposes involved our lives surrendered, transformed, and reflective. Salt and light are not just a good option, but they are his intentions for our lives. Christ-likeness is God's purpose for us. Listen to Romans 8. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. 2 Corinthians 3.18. So all of us who had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Colossians 3.10 Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. Right about now, you should be hearing, You, I want to be like you. I want to look like you, talk like you. When I was at, yeah, you can keep saying it, I know, I know. You all know it, I know it. When I was in, a, in middle school, I think it was, 
Sometimes I dream that he is me. I like to think that's how I came to be. Boom, 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 boom. I dream I move. I dream I groove. Like Mike. If I could be like Mike. Wanna be, I wanna be like Mike. Mike. If God's purpose for us is that we would reflect his son, what purpose do we have with Jesus? The question ends up being, do I have different purposes for Jesus than what God has purposed for us? Is Jesus just like this addition to my life? Or do my purposes and God's purposes actually line up? (laughs) Or am I just saying, well, Jesus, he's just kind of there in times of trouble. I'll just call out to him and that's when I need him. No, 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 no. God's purpose is that we would reflect him. Do you see the role of Christ's work in your life the same way that God does? Are you excited about God's purpose of Christ's life being formed in you? Or is Jesus just a raft for troubled times? Does it bring you great joy to know that God is working Christ's life in you at all times? Or are you limiting Jesus to two hours a Sunday morning? Have you seen Jesus as an option or an add-on to, all, to your life? Or is he life itself? You know, this isn't just a New Testament concept. From the very beginning, starting with Genesis 1, God made it clear, his intention for humanity. Verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them purpose spoken at the very beginning not god part one god part two god old testament god new testament the purpose has remained the same from the beginning and that is that we would be a people to reflect our creator to each other and even after we rejected god's invite to walk in that image the plan hasn't changed in our sin we've said no you know what i don't want to reflect the light i think i want to be the source of light I really don't want to be the salt. I want to be the meal. That's what sin causes us to long for. Sin is us arguing the very purpose of our lives to God. In the Old Testament, the prophets talked about uh, people raising their fists going, you're a dumb God. You didn't make us. We know better than you. That's what we do. We shake our tiny fists. Tiny baby fists. At God. That's what sin does. We think we are the meal. We think we are the actual light. Here's where we get off track, and here is where we come up with another purpose for our lives than what God has in mind. Philippians chapter 2. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Now, as the band comes and we close this morning... I want to make it very clear that you and I can add Christ-likeness to our checklist. As Christians, it's just what we do. We love checklists. Man, do we love checklists. We love little boxes, put a little check mark in it. We love those to-do lists. But this isn't what Christ-likeness is in the life of a believer. You and I can actually go with our Christ-likeness, we can say, am I acting like Christ when I'm around the right people? 
Do I only care about Christ-likeness if I'm on a youth camp trip? Do I care about Christ-likeness if the pastor's in the room? Do I only care about Christ-likeness when I'm at church? Or is Christ's life being formed in me something I long for when I'm sitting at my computer all alone and nobody knows what's going on and there's a website that I'm right ready to click on? I know that's going to... I know that's me wanting to be the meal. I know that's me wanting to be the one who calls the shots. I know that's me saying, I know, I think I know what's going to give me more pleasure than Christ. If I only care about Christ's likeness when other people are around, then do I actually care about the image of Christ being formed in me? Do I long for it? Do I want for people to journey alongside me? And that's the beauty of the small group communities as Christ-likeness and what we've learned of Christ in the week. These are the things that we speak to each other because I need to hear from other people, man, Christ has met me. He has met me in the midst of my sin. He has come close to me. He has shown me that his finished work on the cross is enough and I'm not the meal. And that's a good thing. <laughs> I'm salt. My life has become a door to reveal Christ. Doors swing out of the way, right? You know, a good door does. A good door swings out of the way. Kingdom revealers, as Christ's life is revealed in us, salt and light, this is what the world is so hungry for. If you question why people aren't asking about the church in America, may we be a people who live questionable lives. You know, we'll close this morning. And Paul has helped us understand the fuel to salt and light in Galatians chapter 2. He says this, For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. There's this legalism element. Paul said, I tried to do it all on my own. I tried to make my works enough. So I died to the law. He recognized, I can't do it. I can't carry the weight of the law. It's crushing me. It kills me. It destroys me. And it points out that I'm unable to earn righteousness in front of a holy God. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Paul shares the true flight from legalism to the depth of understanding what grace actually fuels. And the grace of God does not fuel selfishness. It fuels a selflessness that actually stirs questions in the hearts and mind of those who are in the dark and are blind to the love of God for them. So, we're going to close, as we do every week, in worship, in a response to God, and we're going to have some folks over here, and I'll be standing over here inviting you to community, truly, to pray for you, to encourage you, to, to go, hey, I don't have all the answers, but man, coffee sounds great. Christ-likeness is not a hat that we wear. It's not a list of, to accomplish. It is actually who we are 
because of what God has done on our behalf. This is who we were meant to be. God's purpose, that we would reflect His Son, is the greatest invitation any one of us could say yes to. Father, I just beg you in these moments that somehow you would help us catch a vision for the life of Christ formed in us that no work too good, no fault too bad is going to separate us from your love because Christ made the way I did not. I am not the meal. I am not the source of light. I am salt and I'm light because you told me I could be with your life in us. Show us, reveal to us your invitation to trust you. Not just to trust you, but in that trust, we get to reflect you. Bring us to life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.